I only want to start one way. I want to start with a Sagan quote, please. Modern Darwinism makes it abundantly clear that many less ruthless traits, some not always admired by robber barons and Führers, altruism, general intelligence and compassion may be the key to our survival. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. I mean, as always, absolutely spine tingling. Yeah. However, Matt, where was where was Sagan from? He was from the US of A. Yeah, yeah. I think, or I think America. again, I think you were doing your English 1940s general accent. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, but, I think people will forgive yeah, you. Yeah, but I think, you know, if I, if I tried to do a sort of Carl Sagan impression, which you can do, but because he has got a weird voice. Oh, it didn't matter what he sounded like. It just matter what he said. He could have sounded like Beaker from the Muppets and I'd have still worshipped him. It's the Interplanetary Podcast. Putting, Putting the ace... ace. Back into, into space. space. Oh yeah, baby space. So Jamie, yeah, I tell you what, I really, really, really want our listeners to do. And Go on, then. Uh, listeners, so you're aware, Jamie and I do work really, really hard on the podcast. Yeah, and it's all free. It's it's totally free. There's no adverts. God, you bunch They're, of scroungers. <laughs> and we, we we don't even have a Patreon page. We just do this for the love of telling people about space. So we've got one favour to ask. If you could, if you enjoy this absolute forty-five minutes of pure ramble, um, <laughs> could you please give us uh, a like, a comment, um, especially on iTunes, right, Matt? Yeah, iTunes would be fantastic. What would be really, really good because we, what we need, what we've had some amazing listener figures, uh, but it'd be really, really good if we can just get out to all those people that might like to listen to the show. So if we can, if you subscribe on iTunes, or if you listen to us on iTunes, or if you have iTunes, subscribe, and if you can leave us a really good review and a nice thumbs up, that'd be fantastic. So. Please, please, please do that this week. And if we if we all do it this week, we'll get a nice little bump, and that'll be re- and we honestly will that be, would be really, so really nice grateful. because we're you know we're trying to get the podcast to the next level, and we can't do it without you. Yeah, man. So please, please, please comment on iTunes. Let us get what we want for our podcast. <laughs> little bit of uh, The Smiths for you. Was that The Smiths? Yeah, big Excellent. time. Excellent. Some people call me the Morrissey of the space world. Well, you very much are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well you know what that would be great guys um and, and and also please keep your questions coming in and um on twitter and and, and whatnot because we love those yeah and so we want to start you know reading people's comments out you know tell uh, us what uh, subjects you want us to cover because we can do them you know yeah and links to all of this are on interplanetary.org.uk but if you just type in interplanetary podcast into Google, you get lots and lots of links. We're, we're basically the only, we're the only thing that comes up. So let's do it. Let's do it. I'll tell you what, Matt. It's, an, it's been an exciting week. Oh, man. And one that I think that we have to, have to start with, talking mm-hmm. about Rocket Lab. Because yeah. New Zealand is officially on the space map. And that's exactly right. I mean, 
this Rocket Lab thing is actually brilliant. So Rocket Lab, we've obviously talked about it on the show before because yeah. we had uh, Bob Richards from Moon Express talking about it because this is what Moon Express is going to go up with. So yeah. actually it could be even more important later on in the year when it takes the first commercial lander to the moon. You know, this which would be it's phenomenal. All exciting stuff. We should have a quick rundown of some of the ace facts about uh, the Rocket Lab. And it's the it was a, a rocket called the Electron. And the in Electron. particular, that vehicle was called It's a Test. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a kind of Elon Musk. I was gonna say, one. yeah, drink. <laughs> so um yeah, so the uh it it didn't quite reach um uh it didn't manage to get into orbit, which which is which would have been phenomenal for a maiden voyage of a rocket, any mm. rocket system, for it to mm. actually have attained orbit would have been pretty good. I mean, the fact that it got into space is pretty incredible in itself. So absolutely, Not New a bad Zealand, feat. N- New Zealand, just about well, New Zealand didn't quite manage to join a list of twelve con- uh, well, eleven other countries. It would have been the twelfth country to join a list of countries. To get into orbital. So yeah. Russia, the States, France, Japan, China, Britain, mm-hmm. yes. India, Israel, mm-hmm. Ukraine, Iran, mm-hmm. and of course, North Korea. Yeah. So they're, they're all the countries that have managed to achieve launching a vehicle from their own territory into, into orbit. Mm. Uh, of course, Britain's only done it once uh, uh, and the on- the only country to have stopped after doing it once, Ukraine kind of inherited the capability from the old USSR, of course. And uh, well, same with Russia, really. It, it was USSR. Why have the U- Why have we only done it once? Uh, well, because we just abandoned the space program. Not only that, we didn't even join in with the uh, ESA launch system of Ariane Space. So we're not <sighs> even part of that. So uh, France. Uh, did launch independently and now of course sort of heads up the Ariane space ESA um, uh, launch capability mm. which mm-hmm. um, you know uh, is pretty annoying <laughs> yeah I think but you know we, we are building a spaceport at some point there was that uh, UK uh, space agency thing that we're going to have a spaceport soon hopefully by 2020 they reckon they're going to start launching but uh most of the uk space industry thought that was way too ambitious but hopefully we'll see it, but hey. yeah we'll hope well hopefully we'll see that spaceport being built and talking of spaceport so oh yeah the, this this rocket launch was the very was the the first um sort of orbital uh rocket launch from a commercial uh launch complex and Which am I pretty- right in thinking that it was battery powered and 3D printed? Yep, all those things. All is those that, things. Is that a first? Yeah. Well, the 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 yeah. So it's the Rutherford engine, I believe. So the Rutherford engine uh, is 3D printed, and it's 3D printed via electron beam melting, where uh, metal powder is melted in a high vacuum by an electron beam rather than a laser. God, it's insane. You know, I still think of 3D... Whenever I read or hear 3D printing, I still think of kids just printing skateboards and stuff. Yeah. I forget that you can build <laughs> pretty complex things. I didn't actually finish talking about the commercial launch complex. Yeah, go for it. in with 3D printing way too early. Well, you know, I like a good butt. The, the Rocket Lab launch complex was officially opened on the 26th of September 2016. 
and is licensed to launch rockets every 72 hours for 30 years. Like <laughs> me. Yeah, so, so uh, this is the whole point about this rocket. It's very, very different to others. But you're right, the, uh, the engine itself, the Rutherford, is, um, is 3D printed. Mm. Uh, but its, it's most unusual feature is not the fact that it's uh, been 3D printed. It's the fact that it uses an electrical pump. Whoa. Instead of having a um, typical gas-generated, almost like a rocket fuel pump, mm. it, it does it with electrical uh, motors. It, it makes them much more efficient, so they're, they're uh, 95% efficiency uh, compared to 50% normal efficiency of but the, the normal type. what's like? the like? Well, the, the trade-off is, is the fact that you have to have a battery to power these things. Right. And the, and the weight of the battery, obviously, is, is the downside of it. Mm. But the battery pack that, that powers the, the, the sort of first stage of this rocket is, uh, is able to supply power up to one megawatt. So that is some kind of battery, yeah? Yeah, that's not, that's uh, not too shabby. So I'll tell you what this does have in common with, say, the Falcon 9, is the first stage has nine of these Rutherford engines in nice. the first stage. And the second stage just has one. And it has a sort of extra long nozzle uh, as a kind of to optimize it for the vacuum of space. So essentially, the whole vehicle uses the Rutherford engine all the way up, and uh, it's named, of course, after uh, um, Ernest Rutherford, the famous New Zealand Nobel Prize-winning scientist, arguably one of the greatest kind of um, experimental scientists of all time. Yeah, he's the father of nuclear physics. So he discovered half-life. So he was the first person to realise that, that, you know, these these radioactive materials had a half-life. He named alpha and beta radiation. He realised that alpha particles were helium nuclei. And he died in 1937 and was interned into a tomb in Westminster Abbey, which I have visited, in fact, uh, right next to Sir Isaac Newton. Blimey. Yeah, but so, apart, or, apart from all of that, Matt, what has what? Ernest Rutherford ever done for us? <laughs> yeah, Lord Rutherford of Nelson. <laughs> Order of merit. Wow, what a legend. <laughs> Fellow of the Royal Society. So, yes, he's uh, a legend, and obviously in New Zealand is a legend. And now the Electron Rocket has joined New Zealand legendary status. So, there is one thing that this rocket uh, will do, and that's carry 225 kilograms into an elliptical orbit or 150 kilograms into a sun-synchronous low-Earth orbit. So How many bags of sugar is 225 kilograms, Matt? Because that's well, it, what everyone says, isn't it? Well, it with yeah, weight? well, it, it's, it's 220 it's 20 bags of sugar. No, it's 225 bags of sugar. Because in a bag of sugar, a kilogram. Oh, I don't know. Do yeah, I yeah, it's a kilogram. It's just, basically, you can take 225 bags of sugar. That up. is a sweet cargo. It is. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Nice. That's obviously quite small. But check this out. The launch cost is only $4.9 million. Compared so, with what's a normal launch cost? Well, okay, let's do, it. Let's do a few comparisons <clears throat> with Falcon 9. So Falcon 9 is $62 million a launch-ish. Mm. Uh, but they are very, very different, even though they've both got nine engines in their first stage. Okay, let's talk uh, about the height. Yeah, so the height. So, Electron, 17 metres. How high do you think the Falcon 9 is? Uh, it's got to be around 230 feet, isn't it? Yeah, so that's 70 metres. You're, you're, you're bang on. You're bang, bang on. on. Again. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, it's a good five times taller. 
Diameter-wise, uh, the Electron's 1.2 metres and Falcon 9 is 3.7 metres. So it's, it's, you know, it's way over twice as wide. Mm. Well, no, it's three times as wide. Uh, and when it comes to carrying up into low Earth orbit, the Falcon 9 can carry 22,800 bags of sugar. Yeah, so, it definitely yeah, wins there. Yeah, so the price per kilogram of the Electron, I worked out at roughly about £22,000 a kilogram. Whereas Falcon 9 is only £3,000 per kilogram. But then it's designed to do a completely different thing. It's designed to carry much bigger payloads up yeah, into space. Absolutely. Uh, and for 4.9 million compared to 62. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a fact that we can do quite ele- a few of them. Well, I mean, so the whole idea is to create this extremely high cadence. Uh, launch system for small satellites so for example if there was an earthquake somewhere uh, theoretically you could get the electron to to fly up some nanosats that would um go over that particular area and be able to sort of photograph from space so that you can do stuff like that you know i yeah i'm, I'm kind of making that up but it's that sort of thing that's kind of quick response and very f- rapid um launch of uh small satellites into low Earth it's kind of like comparing me and you because i'm a bit smaller than you mm-hmm. you so, probably weigh a tiny bit more but but i tell you what boy could i take some quick photos for you yeah well i mean that remember when uh, before we did the podcasting thing when we were yeah. bank robbers you, oh yeah you came in very very handy when it came into squeezing through the sort of air ducts <laughs> and stuff like that the air or, filters yeah or, or when i and put you reaching in that safe- <laughs> down to get the diamonds yeah and, yeah and that one that one time when i put you in a safety deposit box <laughs> i could definitely get into that yeah i can contort with the best of them that didn't happen guys no reporting us please uh so what do you reckon the engines run on um oh it's gonna be something really hippie like kale juice <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? It runs on the very same thing that Falcon 9, Antares, Saturn 1 and Saturn 5, all that lot run on the same thing. And it's a thing called RP-1 or Rocket Propellant 1. <laughs> oh, I'm kind of disappointed. Yeah, or Refined Propoleum, p- Petroleum 1. Okay. And it's like a sort of uber-refined uh, petrol, essentially. Uh, right. And on the oxidizer is liquid oxygen. So it's a pretty standard affair on that front. Yeah. 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 So uh, so Peter Beck, Peter Beck, who is a New Zealander, he uh, this is what he said. He says our focus with the Electron has been to develop a reliable launch vehicle. <laughs> okay, okay, hang on. That is so South African. Oh, no, it's it, it not didn't even Sorry. true. No, ha, ha, you do it. You do a New Zealand accent. Go. Our focus with the Electron, eh, has been to. De- this is Australian. No, you've got to say you just say a after it. That's no, that's all, no, that's, that's all no, the that's differences. Not, it's a bit more um, our, our focus. <laughs> our focus. <laughs> no, oh no, we can't do it. This anyway. Is like something from the trip. I, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna read it out without without the accent. How about go that? On, then. Our Go focus on, with the Electron has been to develop a reliable launch vehicle that can be manufactured in high volumes. Our ultimate goal is to make space accessible by providing an unprecedented frequency of launch opportunity. So uh, that's what he said. Yeah, that's, and that's, that's one of my favourite things about Rocket Labs, one of the entrepreneurs that set it up with Peter Beck, yeah. well, he was uh, a CD investor and co-director from 2007 to 2011, is a guy called Mark Rocket. Oh, come on. That's got to be his nickname. <laughs> I don't know. It's, no, it's his name, what's it Mark called when, What's it called when you're, you, you do what your surname is? Isn't there a name for that? 
Uh, it's called a coincidence. Like if, you know, your surname is Russell, if you just sort of went round bags of crisps every yeah. day. And your name's Franklin, so if you just went around stamping stamps. Yeah. Something like that. But, but he really does what his surname says. Wow, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, that is cool, isn't it? And uh, uh, and obviously, in, in December the 2010, Rocket Lab got a US government contract to study a low-cost space launcher to place nanosatellites into orbit. So it's American money. I have to say, this is a, is a, it's a New Zealand company, but and also an American company. There's lots of other companies involved, like Lockheed Martin, I believe, have put in a big chunk of change into this company. So mm-hmm. you know, it's not just like some poxy New Zealand company. It's a big. Uh, ongoing affair. Not at all. One this of the very first, one of, they've actually flown into space from New Zealand before. Uh, they had a sort of sounding rocket, and a sounding rocket, for those that don't know, is a is a is a small rocket that's kind of capable of getting into space. And you put loads of instruments on it, and it does a lot of research. So all things like the Van Allen belts and stuff like that were were uh, studied using sounding rockets. Uh, uh, and they had a sounding rocket, the very first one they flew, and it was called the Adia One, which is Maori for more Maori for space. So uh, yeah, there we go. So they had a a New Zealand themed uh, sounding rocket, and that went that went up 120 kilometers high. So this is as, this is roughly where the aurora happened. Which is the Carmen, basically the Carmen line, which is 100 100 kilometers high, which is what everyone really thinks of as the barrier of space. So once you've gone over 100 kilometres or 62 miles, you are in space. You are in space. One day, Matt. <clears throat> One day. Mm. So in, so to make all this happen, the New Zealand government had created the new rocket red legislation and set up a space agency uh, in, in, an, in anticipation of becoming the low-cost space hub. And, and I think New it's Zealand, awesome. Yeah, well, New Zealand's got this brilliant advantage over everyone else. Is in um, whenever there's a launch in America, they have to um, tell all the ships and nearby um, uh, anything, any sort of traffic, ships and planes and all those sort of things need to be yeah. rerouted so that the rocket can launch and there's absolutely no chance of an accident. But New Zealand has obviously got Antarctica to its south and can just basically far away. So yeah. it's it's a lot less congested down there. Uh, and that's its main advantage. So they should be able. So that's re- one of the reasons why they can do this one rocket every seventy-two hours. They've definitely got the space too, isn't there? Like seven million people in New Zealand. Yeah, it's pretty tiny. Well, yeah, it's. it's po- I mean, it population there's is more people in London. Yeah, there's, its population is smaller than London, and the and New Zealand itself is pretty much almost to the mile the same size as Britain. Oh, I really want to go. My cousin lives in New Zealand, Matt. Yeah, I've got I've got cousins who live in New Zealand as well. Should we go? Yeah. We should definitely go. Yeah, look, all my cousins live in New Zealand. I've got loads of friends in New Zealand. We've got Andy Fagan. Let's go. And we oh, can, he's genius. And we can interview Rocket Lab. Yeah. And, um, you know, go no, and we, see we should de- Milford Sound. I, I, I am looking for an excuse to go to New Zealand because I, I have lots of friends in New Zealand. So it, I am... Uh, I think we should go yeah. and do it. And I've also heard their pies. Their pies are very good, I wonder. Apparently. I wonder if we can get Bob Richards to invite us over and we, you know, all expenses paid trip to cover the launch for him. Press, well, press-wise. I'm pretty certain that he's listening now and already <laughs> okay. booking our flights. Yeah. Phone, yeah. If I know Bob. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> there is, there's only one community that's been a little bit put out by this, Go and on. that's the local Maori community. Why? 
Uh, because obviously public access has been blocked to this particular um, headland. Ah, yeah. Uh, so there was a, a, a quote from a nearby farmer, Poitoumata, uh, and he said, people come to Mahia so they can go to the beach and it's been chopped off now. And by the sounds of it, one of these rockets are going to be launched every 30 days. So they've taken over our lifestyle. Well, I can completely understand Yeah, but that. then he did finish off with the, uh, where he says, I'm for technology. A lot of things could come of it through education. It gives our children something different in their careers. Nobody thought to get into the space industry before now. So there we go. That's perfect. Yeah, so that, that, there's always a trade-off, isn't there? <clears throat> always a trade-off. Absolutely, absolutely. So Rocket Lab obviously isn't the only only company in this space, so it's, it's becoming pretty um, crowded already. We had the Vector launch system launch the other day, so there's quite a lot of companies like piling in, but it does seem Rocket Labs seems to be ahead of the competition. It's the first one that's really sort of got a serious rocket up into space, plus the fact that it's got this electric motor thing and 3D printed engines. It's a completely carbon fibre um, sh- outer shell, etc. So this thing... It, I think it's brilliant. I guess yeah, that's a completely great quote that you just did at the end there. Mm. Because in a hundred years, yeah, there could be thousands of employees in New Zealand are all, all working for the for, for their space agency. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, you know, it, it's, it's amazing. Well, I always think, I mean, space is such a brilliant driver of high technology jobs. You know, mm. and countries like uh, Britain and New Zealand—that—that's the sort of—that's the sort of jobs we should be really seeking out. I mean, we're developed. Yeah, yeah. We're developed nations. We need—they're the kind of things that we should be doing. Getting into space and, actually, if, and doing high-end If you think stuff. about, if you think about noise pollution as well, you wouldn't be as—you wouldn't be as annoyed, would you? As like traffic or, you know, yeah. building work. But if you're hearing a rocket go off, you're like, that's going to space. Oh, yeah, baby space. So what else has been going on this week, Matt? Well, uh, I'll I'll give you a bit of a random fact of uh, space history. It was five years ago this week that the Dragon was the first commercial spacecraft to visit the ISS. Oh, happy anniversary, Dragon. Did you see the pictures of the massive barge that took the SLS to Alabama? I did see the pictures. Incredible. Have we got these on our blog? Yes, they'll be going up. So uh, the NASA Pegasus barge, I love that. It it looks amazing. So um, what's amazing is all these bits of the SLS that are being made down in Michoude uh, are, are then having to be sent to Alabama to be tested to see if they'll survive launch. So basically they're, they're going there to get kind of smashed about a bit. And yeah. I, I don't, you know, the fact that they, the reason why they can't do it at the original place where they're built is because all the expertise is up at Marshall in Alabama. Ah, okay. So uh, this, this, this massive piece of the SLS has gone up uh, on, on this huge barge, which I thought was really exciting. And it took 17 days to go up the Mississippi uh, Ohio and Tennessee rivers. So it's really been sort of just floating on this huge barge very, very slowly. Oh, my God. And then, that's insane. Yeah, and then it has to be taken out of the barge and pretty much uh, taken at walking pace another seven miles to the actual building, building number 4619. Just like our rocket carriers that can't have a spark. Yeah, exactly. So that's got to go super slowly. And then it's going to be fitted with 3,000 sensors and data collection points and then it's going to have these huge hydraulic lines 55 of them put all around it that squeeze and stretch and do all sorts of stuff bend and crush 
and that's going to take uh, <laughs> almost like uh, a whole year to uh, to do to check that these bits and all the bits of the SLS have got to go over here to have this similar sort of testing. Uh, but this is kind of really the last stage before they actually put the thing together and send it up into space. So what else has happened, Jamie? Well, you know old Peggy Whitson? I'm aware of her. She's just been smashing it out with her EVAs. Oh, what? I mean, she is now up to 60 hours, 21 minutes. Is that her tent? Uh, well, her and Jack Fisher yep. uh, successfully completed two hours and 46 minutes on Tuesday, just gone in what NASA described as a critical spacewalk uh, to repair a failed piece of equipment that he, uh, that helps power on the ISS. So Was that the multiplexer, demultiplexer unit? Yeah, that's right. I do like that name, the MDM. MDM, yeah. How did you know, Matt? I think that was the 201st spacewalk, if I'm not mistaken, on the ISS. Oh well, I don't know, but you know what? I'm going to believe you, man. Yeah, it was a bit. I think there was a. It was not an emergency because, but but basically, the the ISS wouldn't work if two of those units go down, and there's two. There's only two, I think, and so uh, they had to go out and fix that one because you don't want to be only flying no. With, with no redundancy whatsoever. No, exactly. So uh, I, I was really sad this week. You know why I was sad? I know why you were sad, Matt. Because Roger Moore died. Couldn't believe it. Shaken, not stirred. Uh, and, and, of course, my favourite quote of all time from any film ever was... Go on, my God, what's Bond doing now? Uh, I think he's attempting re-entry, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Which is definitely one of the coolest <laughs> ends to any I film mean, ever. You know, if you thought, if you thought car- the carry-on films were innuendo-laden... Um, yeah. Just watch, just watch that, a, a Bond. I'm not joking. Film. That's why Roger Moore is easily the best Bond, because he's the one that plays it as it's supposed to be. It's supposed. Surely, no one can take James Bond seriously. It's it's just too ridiculous. So Roger Moore plays it just right. You know, it's, yeah, I, it's just I agree. suave, I mean, he's... sophisticated, totally ridiculous. It's just amazing, uh, Miss Moneypenny. Absolutely ace. (laughs) I love Roger Moore. Uh, God bless him. Since playing Bond, I Roger Moore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, so, yeah, God bless Roger Moore. Fab. fab. Uh, And of course, we lost the Black Hole Sun Singer as well this week, just literally (sighs) immediately after our last last podcast. Yeah, awful. So he was a massive hero too. Saw him him, him on the. on that tour, on the Super Unknown tour. so um, I also saw him then, and I also saw him... I mean, this was one of, the, one of the best days of my life when I managed to be lucky enough to watch, watch, them, play sound, um, watch them play Super Unknown in its entirety <clears throat> in Hyde Park. I was standing side of the stage, managed to snag a pass, and uh, standing next to me was Jimmy Page, and he was in complete awe of what he was watching. He he just kept kind of, he's just shaking his head, Ooh. just because he was in absolute admiration. Incredible! What a voice! I love a bit of JP. I remember painting a oh, wall black, yes. and Jimmy Page walking past me and said, "Oh, that's a nice colour." <laughs> Oh, dear. Yeah, he's good. I like him. Uh, oh. 
The no, that's actually a true story. Um, t- <laughs> the, no, it really is. The uh, is it? yeah, no, that gen- genuinely is a true story. Uh, yeah, I work, work, I, like I work with Jimmy Page for a, a, about a couple of months. The so DARPA. What pair of clangers we yeah, are? Yeah, clang. Whoa. Sorry, I should start that again. DARPA picks Boeing for the XS One program. So, What's the story? Well, have you seen how cool the space plane XS1 looks? I don't think I've seen so it. So DARPA have put together this space plane, and the, I think the whole point of it is that it's, um, it, it's, they need this really quick response plane, so something that, that can take uh, anything into space very, very quickly. I, I, I guess a bit like the Electron, <laughs> it's so that mm. they can deploy satellites you know, at a moment's notice and really, really cheaply. Yeah, it's an entirely new class of hypersonic aircraft that can break a cycle of escalating launch costs, and uh, and adds a whole host of critical national security options. And so, Boeing are going to take part of phases two and phases three. And phase two is fabrication, and phase three is flight. And what's amazing is I was quite surprised by the timescale of this. So, by twenty twenty, they want to have done uh, twelve to fifteen. Test flights. They want to do ten flights in ten days uh, of this new system, and carrying up, uh, carrying up uh, a payload on the final uh, flight. Matt, what do they mean by fabrication? Fabrication, putting the whole thing Mm. together. Right. They don't mean it in the Marcus Allen sense of the word. Make it up. Yeah, they're not. They're not just (laughs) making things up. Yeah, no. So, so Boeing are going to build the thing. And then Boeing are going to fly the thing, so that's phases two and three, and that and that's and that seems like it's going to be turned around very very fast. By the way, phase one was the feasibility study. I'm, I'm assuming. Right. Brad Towsley, who's the director of DARPA's Tactical Technology Office, yeah. said this. He says, "We're delighted to see this truly futuristic capability coming closer to reality." Demonstration of aircraft-like, on-demand and routine access to space is important for meeting critical Defence Department needs. It can help open the door to a range of next-generation commercial opportunities. And that, again, is going to be similar sort of cost to the, the Electron of $5 million per launch. Um, it's a snip. And it's a snip. Well, it's, a, it's basically a space plane that launches like a rocket and goes up and has a kind of piggyback uh, final stage on the back of it and then that launches off the top it does look really really futuristic and very very different to anything i've ever seen before so i'll have to check out the photos that i mean that would be brilliant to go down and see the maiden voyage like these these test flights in 2020 for that i mean that's that's got to be bookable be amazing do they smash a bottle of champagne over spacecrafts probably Probably. not (laughs) it's probably too much sensitive yeah i don't think they're quite yeah technology on it the the outside skin of a spacecraft is probably a little bit too sensitive compared to that of a ship i wonder what the what what their version is to kiss the side and give it a nice stroke i'm gonna i'm gonna do some research <laughs> the uh, a lot of uh, science came out this week on the report of why schiaparelli uh, the european probe crashed into mars this year yeah what's the story well, the story was that one of the sensors kind of overloaded it had too much information coming in overloaded confused the uh, onboard computer and everything deployed in the wrong order and, and just smashed into the planet Oh, that's not good. Uh, so, and it apparently it was just a, a spin. It says, um, so the European Space Agency say the sudden spin lasting only a second. A spin lasting only a second. I'm really confused by that. Overloaded the senses, yeah. and it thought that it already reached ground, so it kind of, just, uh, you know, 
didn't work. You, ESA came under a little bit of criticism for this because it was like, actually, they, this kind of effect should have really have been flagged up and uh, mm. there should be more robust sanity checks, I believe they called them, in place to make sure that an overloading of a sensor doesn't cause this kind of thing and and that it kind of the computer is able to sort of say ah oh, this, this doesn't look right i know a few people who, sh- who should have a sanity check one of them's talking now what <laughs> <laughs> uh so yeah the, uh. so that, that's in, that's interesting isn't it they they did they they did get almost <clears throat> a little bit of a telling off about it but it did collect a lot of science, and actually it pretty much did 90% of its job, and all that information will be used for the ExoMars uh, lander. So it's, all, it's, all, it's not all bad. So it's not all but bad. But they uh, do recommend that ESA work more closely uh, with uh, NASA agencies to get as much kind of information and help as possible with these things, because they're fearfully difficult. Matt, let me tell you about the so- Soyuz rocket. Yeah, go hit me. Shortly after 2.34 a.m. on the 25th of May, mm-hmm. uh, the Soyuz lifted off from Site 43 at the Placidex <laughs> Cosmodrome. Yeah, I don't know how to say it the either. Second, do you reckon that's how you say it? No, uh, Placet. <laughs> Apologies to any I Russians. I think it's Placetsk Cosmodrome. That's exactly what I said. Okay. <laughs> it wasn't at all. Um, and it delivered the second of the EKS series of early warning satellites to a rare tundra orbit. Oh, do you know what a tundra orbit is? Go on. So a tundra orbit is uh, a kind of orbit that's, that, that sends a satellite out in, a, in, a, in a quite an elliptical, well, in fact, a highly elliptical uh, geosynchronous orbit. And note that that's not geostationary. And it's set uh-huh. at an inclination. Uh, and, and the reason why it's not geostationary is because it, it, it doesn't quite stay in the one place. You can only really have geostationary over the equator. Right. If you want to sort of stay over the top of a high latitude on Earth, mm-hmm. you need to put... You, basically, the, the, the point of the tundra orbit is that as it's, as, as it's orbiting round, it traces... It stays in the same place on Earth, but it kind of traces a bowling ball shape over the earth so it sort of stays in the same place but but does this bowling ball shape and the kind of head of the ball, bowling ball it it's going slower because it's not on the fast bit of the geostation uh, of this highly elliptical orbit and it's a really good way of just making a high uh, latitude um Geo, almost geostationary over a high latitude, but it has to kind of do this bottom of the bowling pin to get back up and sort of stay slowly over that area. So it's 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 not quite geostationary, but it is geosynchronous. It's, it's quite Matt. What what proof have you got though that b- bowling balls aren't flat? This is it. We'll we'll need to get someone on the program to help. Discuss. I mean, I just you know, I just I, I'm just throwing it out there. I mean, you know, everyone everyone's lying to us, and I think that bowling balls are flat. <laughs> and I, I'm asking our listeners to prove me, prove, prove wrong. me wrong. Well, if we can yeah. have some letters in there, please. If you think, if you think you're so clever. <laughs> oh, Jamie, Jamie, remember? Yeah. Do you remember episode 16 when we had when we talked about the psyche mission? I do briefly. So I, I, I think this is one of my this is one of my uh, favourite missions on the table at the moment to go to this huge uh, body in the asteroid belt. And it's mm. unusual, in fact, very different from all the other bodies in the fact 
that what it appears to be is the core of a planet that's had the rocky outside smashed off it. So it's this yeah. huge metal core that's floating out in the asteroid belt. And the Psyche mission is to go and visit this asteroid Psyche. But the really... That ex- is cool. Yeah. So the really exciting thing is Jim Green. This is what he had to say. He said, we challenged the mission design team to explore if an earlier launch date could be could provide a more efficient trajectory to the asteroid. And they came through in a big way. And this Whoa. will enable us to fulfil our science objectives sooner and at a reduced cost. So they've gone win, away. Win. I know yeah, this is this is brilliant. So it was expected to launch in 2023, and I think we mentioned this on the show. But it's all changed now because it looks like they're going to be able to launch it in 2022. Nice. Uh, and the journey is going to take. I think it's only going to take. It's going to take a lot. It's three years quicker. So it's going to get there four year four years ahead of its earlier schedule. So, uh, I mean. yeah, so that's brilliant. So it's, it's going to do the same sort of trip, uh, but it's going to have the, the one, the, the most amazing thing is it's got these extra panels, solar panels on the solar array. So instead of having two sort of sticky out solar arrays that you normally see, it's got X's because yeah. the solar panels sort of fold out in the middle. So it's got oh, these sweet. X-shaped uh, solar panels now. So that, and that's so that the asteroid can uh, use higher power to use its solar electric propulsion to get to the um, psyche quicker. And that's part of its new, uh, you know, mission profile. Yeah, that's, that's good. I'm really glad that it's going to get up there sooner, so, uh, Yeah, well, uh, totally. I mean, that's, that's four years. We have to, uh, don't have to wait. I, we might even still be alive. Matt. Yeah, 2026 isn't that far away, isn't it? <laughs> even though it's yeah. still nine years away. Yeah, <laughs> depressingly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so that's that. That's one to really look forward to. I'd, it'd be so amazing when the pictures from that come back. I mean, it, it could look incredible. This thing might look absolutely extraordinary close up because we've seen nothing like it. You know, this is the core of a planet. I mean, that is going to start to tell us a lot of stuff that we just would never know. Exactly, and there might be crazy stuff going on, like. You know all the kind of magnetic fields around it. There might, uh, there's so much science that can presumably be got from this. Plus, it gives us an opportunity to study a potentially something that's similar to the uh, the core of our own planet. Well, Matt, we went to see Brian Cox last night at the Wembley Arena. We did, which was, by the way, amazing, and it was the biggest uh, selling science show. Ever. Ever, yeah, it's in the Guinness Book of Records. So we are part of a world record. Part of history. Yeah. And as they rightly pointed out, you know, amazing that on a Friday night, what was it, 9,000 people turned out for a science lecture. <laughs> It's 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 the new rock and roll. Yeah, and it was it was brilliant. Uh, it's such a it really really obviously Brian Cox was just doing his Brian Cox thing. He was, uh, <laughs> and he had the great Robin Ince uh, with him to lighten lighten the mood at points. Yeah, it was really great. And actually, the reason that you reminded me of it is one of the questions from a, I believe an eight year old girl in the audience who texted in. She said, "If two people from opposite sides of the Earth." jump down holes towards the centre of the Earth, would they then start climbing as gravity pulls them towards the centre of the Earth? Pretty amazing question, huh, Matt? 
Yeah, and and uh, uh, Brian Cox said oh, that they would sort of whiz past each other and then sort of go, um, if there was no wind resistance, they would end up in simple harmonic motion. So they would just kind of bounce up and down, essentially. Yeah, but uh, then he kind of suddenly doubted himself, and so we all doubted his answer at that point. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, but my favourite bit, you know what my, my favourite bit was, go Jamie, on. when we walked out and I was having my uh, doubts about hyper-realisation. You were. <laughs> and but I said, "Come on, let's let's look." And we looked behind us, and there was Wembley Stadium. I said, "Oh, look at Wembley Stadium." We had the big arch of Wembley Stadium, yeah. and we had Jupiter shining really Jupiter brightly was above very it. Bright. And then and then what happened? And then we had Peggy. We had Peggy Whitson flying it. over our heads. Yeah, it was like you timed it. It was like you knew. It was uh, like you were looking. It's at like it, it was. It was literally. Yeah. It was one of the, the brightest ISS just uh, ISS flying past us. I've never seen it bodies. so bright. Which in London is a rare thing. And we had 8,000 super science nuts walking right past us. Totally and we were the unaware. Only ones, we were the only ones looking up and could see Jack Fisher guys, and Peggy Whitson remember to look up waving down to yeah. us. They were, in fact, it'd be interesting to see if any of those astronauts that night had le- leant out the window and did their taking a taking picture photos. of London. Yeah, in fact, I might even look that up. Because that'd be good, because you might be able to pick ourselves out and say, well, there's that. Wembley. We were there. If they we zoomed were there, in, How cool if is they that? zoomed in hard enough, they'd have seen us. So if you go on the NASA website and uh, and see if you can try and spot... Uh, it's a bit like Where's Wally. Yeah. In fact, it is, the, it is Where's Wally's. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, dear. oh, yes. So another bit of science that came in this week was all the stuff coming in about Juno. Oh, yes. So for those that don't know, Juno is very much like Cassini. It's doing these very daring uh, swoops right down really close to the planet except uh juno's started off like that juno that that's like juno's mission is essentially like the end of cassini's mission yeah. and it's swooping down but the one thing that it does have on it is uh a juno cam which is a way that the public can get involved and sort of say oh let's get a picture of this let's get a picture of that and you can process the pictures which is what i've, I've done you've a couple been doing this it, haven't you? yeah uh, yeah and it's lovely it's yeah, it's, it's real. It's really quite amazing. But some of the some of the people that do this processing are amazing. They they manage to even capture sort of these clouds, these like white fluffy clouds in in um in in the Jupiter atmosphere. It's absolutely incredible. But um, it looks like a lot of this science that's coming back has absolutely staggered the science community. Mm. He says, uh, his, one of the NASA uh, spokesmen said, even in rooms of hardened researchers, these images of swirling clouds have drawn gasps. Really? A lot of it's to do with the hurricanes that are at the planet's poles. Yeah, and aren't they like Earth-sized hurricanes? Yeah, and they're all closely packed in Huge. and they're just completely going crazy and rivers of ammonia flowing down into the atmosphere 350 kilometers down and it's this huge circulation system and everyone's going wow we weren't expecting this and the magnetic field's 10 times stronger than they thought it was going to be so it's oh, no, no, no twice the strength of what they thought it was going to be putting it 10 times stronger than earth's now they're really unsure about what the core of jupiter is is now they're really confused you know they thought it was going to be a a sort of a core but it could be sort of partially dissolved in this swirling atmosphere so as uk scientist dr jonathan nichols said from university Mm. of leicester he said it's got us all scratching our heads i have to say oh wow 
Yeah, well, I mean, the most incredible is the the auroras. The auroras don't seem to be made in oh, the same way that ours are. So beautiful, and, as well. and it, yeah, and the auroras are incredible. And it, uh, but they're looking for these millions of volts that are going down, and they're just not there. So they mm. they really are confused about the um, the the. Uh, the auroras they're just the, just the power of these you know millions of amps of current are supposed to be going down they just can't see it with juno's equipment so the great thing about scientists being confused is it kind of drives their tenacity to find out do you know what i mean oh totally. it's like well let's do some more experiments shall we you know they're not content to just go oh we, we don't know so uh that, i think that's that back wraps it up for this week okay space yeah. cats that's that thank you listeners so thank you very much for joining us on the interplanetary podcast ta-ta see you next week bye bye bye